Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. It's time for another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. As always, delighted to bring you more tennis talk from the pro game that you know and love. And returning to the podcast on this week's show is none other than Chris Eubanks, the American sensation, took over the tennis world by storm, broadcasting and, of course, playing that run to the Wimbledon quarterfinals where he became a household name in the tennis sphere. Chris Eubanks, very generous with his time. He was in town to call the next-gen finals for TC. We break down the year that was, how 2022 set the table for 2023, the Miami Open, Jamie Foxx watching him play, the emotional win that got him into the top one. 100. His first title in Mallorca on the grass led right into Wimbledon, where he beats Sitsipas, beats Cam Nori, gets to the Wimbledon quarterfinals, and gives Daniil Medvedev all he could handle. Eubanks was a great guest, as always, very generous with his time, telling stories as only he can, talking about his friends Ben Shelton taking over the tennis scene as well, how he saw something special in him early on, and what it was like to watch Coco Goff, another dear friend, win her first major title. A lot of exciting and insightful stuff with Chris Eubanks on this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. All right, now welcoming on to Tennis Channel Inside In, back for the third time now. Uh, every time I talk to this guy, there's a, a new ranking update, a new life update as well. Uh, he had his breakthrough year by far. I think now you're second in command in Mallorca other than this famous uh, Spanish tennis player. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris Eubanks, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to have you on. Always a blast and excited to talk to you again. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back. So we were talking about, you know, years and breakthroughs and everything and, you know, we're in this off season, which is, you know, the shortest off season in all sports. But did it take this long to actually set in what the year was like? Or were you processing how well your 2023 was along the way? Now that you have a reset, I know you're super busy, but have you finally taken the time to look back at what last season was? Um, A little bit, not not too much. I, I kind of did it incrementally as the year moved on. It just Things mm-hmm. were just so different knowing that when I entered tournaments, I was going to be in the main draw no longer having to enter main draw and qualities, which yeah. is that was kind of when things started to set in as I'm doing the entries for tournaments like Basel and Stockholm and uh-huh. Paris. It's like, wow, like I'm, I know I'm already in the main draw. That's this year has been, been pretty crazy. Um, there've been a few times in which I've kind of gone back and just put myself back in that situation in Mallorca, whatever my frame of mind was just thinking, Hey, it'd be nice to get a couple match wins and, mm-hmm. you know, see what happens after that and just to see how everything kind of progresses is a bit surreal. Yeah, I wanted to go to one clip on today's show. This is the only one. It's actually you from last year on this podcast. I wanted okay. you to react to how this was. Throughout the summer, I've been playing some really good ball um, throughout a lot of the weeks this year, and I've been able to just kind of piece together some good weeks. Finally got my first Grand Slam win, which I think was the biggest, you know, battery in my back I could have had I remember walking off the court and just seeing some friends and saying wow I finally feel like a professional tennis player yeah. I know I've qualified in a few times I've won some rounds at tour events but so you get that grand slam win it just doesn't really mm-hmm. at least in my case I just didn't really feel 
like a professional tennis player, and I can finally say I have one. Now I'm looking to try to get many more. I'm looking to try to end my year on a high note with these next three tournaments coming up, and I'm just excited. Well, that was, uh, you know, and it's funny that the mission accomplished, first of all, but the second <laughs> part about that story, Chris, is that you were somebody that was still trying to have your breakthrough. And I think people that just kind of discovered you later think this is kind of insane, right? Like you're that close to the breakthrough. It happened. But what about, I guess, finishing strong the year before set the table for, you know, your 2023? I think it just gave me a lot of confidence from a consistency standpoint, which is something that I feel like I've always kind of lacked. I knew I could be a threat on any given match, uh, step out there against any opponent and can disrupt them, can cause them some issues. Mm -hmm. But it would be tough to kind of get over the finish line consistently. I would always feel like I could be good for one or two good matches a week. And then, you know, maybe I started misfiring a bit or maybe, you know, just the consistency a lot of my career hadn't been there. Um, I'd had stints of consistent results in my career, but yeah. nothing, you know, nothing that really made me feel like, you know, I could win multiple rounds in tour events on a consistent basis. And I think um, being able to do that at the end of that year, falling to Ben, the final of those two challengers in Charlottesville and Knoxville, and then advancing to the semifinals where I fell to Alex Vukic, kind of showed that, hey, you know, I can put together – four or five really good quality matches and I can do it week in and week out. And I think after having that final run in Charlottesville, then following it up with the final run in Knoxville, when I got to Champaign, things just <laughs> felt like, oh, you know, I've been winning a lot of matches. Let's yeah. just kind of move on and was able to do that and just, you know, fell in the semis. But still, I, afterwards, I could kind of look up and say, man, like I, I put together three really good weeks, probably mm-hmm. the three best weeks of my career up until that point. So I just felt like the confidence and the, the belief that I could be consistent started to grow. You know, people look at Miami as like your big breakthrough and the start of something special. Would you go back to even look at that first one in New Zealand? Because I was looking at that tournament there, and you're playing some pretty tough players. And one of them was Ugo Umber, who yeah. ended up finishing really strong, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Lajevic Umber, that seemed like the start of it. That U.S. Open run, you played center. So you're starting to do well, come through challengers, come through main draws, and also test yourself against the best. I feel like that was part of the puzzle for getting you to this point. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I um, It was such a huge part of just kind of being able to test those waters and, and, and seeing coming out of those three events the end of last year, I actually went to Pune. I was supposed to play a 250 in Pune. Got yeah. there and just didn't feel well. Got yeah. a bit sick. Had some, some respiratory issues. And I had the opportunity to step foot on the court and just try to give it a go. I was the number one seed in qualities, which is like the worst place you want to be because I'm like <laughs> yeah. one withdrawal away from getting yeah. into the main draw. But I got there. I started practicing. I, I, I think I practiced with Nicholas Basilashvili um, and Aslan Karatsev. And I just I couldn't – I just didn't feel like I was myself. And I told my coach, I said, listen, I, I've had a really good end of the year. Mm-hmm. I don't want to start off this year on a bad note just That's by smart. trying to just yeah. go out there and just – for some reason, mentally, I just felt like it could maybe undo a lot of the hard work that I did last year. So I said, honestly, I'd rather just pull out, bite the bullet financially, Mm -hmm. head on to Auckland and use that for better preparation. And I think it all paid off. We we get to Auckland. It's very, very (laughs) rainy. Luckily, Coco was there um, playing the WTA event. So I got a chance to kind of watch her and hang out with her and support her in her matches. Um, But we were actually able to get on the practice court a bit earlier than majority of the guys mm. because I got there earlier than anyone yeah. else. Um, so I familiarized myself with the, with the courts. We had to play a couple matches indoors, which those courts were very, very quick. And I just think because I had a little extra time on it, I was a bit more comfortable there. 
and things just kind of started working out. I, I always think back, like, man, I'm so glad I didn't play. I didn't even step foot on the court in Pune. I wanted to make sure the first time I stepped foot on the court in 2023, I was all there. I happened, I believe, to go against, I don't remember if it was Lyovich or Sosa. I think it was Lyovich first, and Joao Sosa next, former you know, top 60 player as well. And then I uh, was able to beat Ugo Bear in the first round, who was the defending champion there. So when I started to have the results, I yeah. said, okay, that was the right decision. Yeah. I'm glad I can keep that momentum from the end of last year going to start fresh this year. And I think it just kind of started rolling. Knowing when to stop is a huge thing, too, knowing when to listen to your body. We were just talking about that here in, on TC Live a couple weeks ago, like a month ago now, with Taylor Fritz, because that guy wants to play as much as possible. Yeah. But his team and, and everybody around him was like, you have to pull the cord now and rest up for Australia. Because as you said, you have to start out strong and you don't want to get into a rut and then be chasing that the whole season. 100%. 100%. You know, looking at that, too, I mean, Coming up the rankings, Chris, is hard in a lot of ways because a lot of this, as you know, is draw-specific. Yeah. Australia, you run into Yuri Laheka, who is a heck of a player also, yeah. but it kind of shows you that you know you put all this work in, you put all the time in, but sometimes you need the breaks, and sometimes you just run into a brutal draw, brutal opponent early. Yeah, 100%, and th that's the thing, I think, in tennis that makes it so difficult to stay consistent with your process, or at least for me in the mm -hmm. past, made it difficult for me to stay consistent in the process because – you do all of this work. You feel as though you're being as professional as possible. You're getting the sleep that you need. You're eating properly. You're training as hard as you possibly can. And then you might have two or three weeks of, you know, just unfortunate circumstances, whether they could be bad draws, whether it could be the elements being out of your control and kind of disrupting your rhythm. It can be, you know, extremely windy on a particular day mm -hmm. out of nowhere. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, my game style doesn't really lend itself to being too good <laughs> in the wind, but still keeping your mind fresh and saying, hey, I've been doing the right stuff for the past three weeks. Maybe yeah. things haven't gone well. Maybe I've gone 0-3 in some matches. But I have to just trust that if I continue to do this, it will work out. And that's the hardest part about yeah. it because it's not always instant. And I think in my case, at least for the remainder of my career, it's going to be a lot easier for me to trust in that process because I've seen this year what the results can be. Yeah. Um, I've been pro for five or six years before this year, and – hadn't had this much success and when I finally kind of started to invest in that process and not be so result oriented or result driven I saw like hey I have the capability of winning an ATP 250 like I have yeah. the capability of quarterfinaling a grand slam so now for I feel like the remainder of my career win or lose it's easy to continue to buy into that process because I know at any given time things could come together we proved it this year, and it really did start to come together on a national stage in Miami. And I have to ask you a uh, weirder question because of the player. I don't think many people would understand this, but have you ever had an emotional moment in tennis like the Barrera match? No, never, that, never. Yeah, because yeah, never. And explain to me why it wasn't just beating who you beat. It was the circumstances of the match and what that match meant for your ranking and that milestone. Yeah, so funny enough, I didn't know that match was the top 100 match. I had been keeping track of being top 100 in the weeks before, and I lost first round in Monterey. I believe I was one of my first – I was a first round win away from mm -hmm. being top 100 in Monterey. Then I got a, uh, I got into Acapulco where I played Philly Lopez and um, didn't play well there, lost mm -hmm. in straight sets. And But I knew sitting at 102, any of those yeah. matches could have boosted me inside the top 100. But I also knew that in Indian Wells – I had to quality in and win around. I had a lot of points to defend. Yeah. And I was in qualities of Indian Wells this year, hoping I, I would get a major wild card. I didn't get it, so I was in qualities. Fell to Maximilian Martyrer. And uh, ironically enough, Coco was at that match as well. And I told her afterwards, I said, you know, the past two weeks have been pretty bad, but this one, I felt more like myself. I still mm. lost in three, 
but I felt more like myself on the court, and I think, like, I'm starting to find my form. And even she said the same thing. She goes, yeah, like, you were playing well, you know, just a few points here. That didn't go your way. And so I could took, I took some confidence from that. But after that, I decided going into Miami, I would no longer look at the live rankings. <laughs> and so I kind of went into Miami saying, all right, no longer checking the live rankings. I know I'm about to drop a decent amount of points from losing first round of Indian Wells, but I think I dropped around 120. I said, I'm just going to go out here. I'm going to play tennis, and we're just going to see what happens. And so kind of progressing from qualities to my first round against Kutla to um, I believe the Barrere match. No, the uh, Chorich was second round. Barrere was the third round. Yeah. It was more so the circumstances. I had been playing so well. I was up a set and a break. I was playing some of the best tennis I probably played in all of Miami. Yeah. And I had one loose service game in which I got broken back. And Barrera's confidence started to grow. And we get into the tiebreaker. I like my chances I still, you know, after being up a set and a break. And he broke back. And we get into the tiebreaker. And we had had a couple rain delays. And you can kind of feel that rain was coming yeah. in Miami. Wind was starting to pick up. And it was super late in the evening already. Uh-huh. I think we maybe had already had one or two rain delays. And then we get to the tiebreaker, and I get down 5-2. Rain starts to fall. We have to go into the locker room. I'm down 5-2. And at this point, my mind is already kind of focusing on the third set. I'm yeah. like, 5-2, Barrera's <laughs> serving as yeah. well. And Barrera's a really good serve. So I'm like, ah, man, this might be tough. And we go into the locker room. I actually see Francis Tiafo, who's in the middle of a pretty tough match himself. Um, and I kind of asked him, hey, how's your match going? He just brushed it off. He said, let's not talk about it. He goes, what's up with you? And I said yeah. that, um, you know, I'm down. I'm up a set. I was cruising. Now I'm down 5-2. We're serving. You know, I'm probably just going to, you know, focus my energy more so on the third. And Francis kind of said, no, like 5-2 in a breaker, you can come back from that. Like you can come, you can win this when you go back on court. You don't have to wait until for uh, wait for a third set. So, I'm listening to him. I'm kind of yeah. like, yeah, okay, you're, yeah, I don't, I don't make as many returns as you typically, <laughs> so you wouldn't really understand. So we get on court, we go back on the court. It's, it's maybe all of eight people there. It's late. It's probably close to midnight. We, they drive the court. Just did a phenomenal job there. And I remember first point, Barrera misses his first serve, and I say he's not expecting me to try to crank a second serve after a rain to lay down. I'm gonna step yeah. around, find a forehand. I do it, step around, find a forehand. I miss it wide by maybe a couple inches. It just barely mistimed mm-hmm. it, and I'm thinking, oh, six two down, I'm mm-hmm. definitely done. I get a favorable let court on one point. I win the two points on my serve, and I make a good return, and he misses the first ball at 6-5 that uh, makes it 6-all. And then I'm changing sides, and I'm going, uh-oh, I might be able to win this match now. And so I come back. I end up winning that match either 8-6 or 9-7, can't remember, and – was just stunned. Couldn't believe it. My yeah. hands went above my head. I'm looking at my coach like, what just happened? I can't believe I won that match. And yeah. then I shake Barrera's hand. I shake the umpire's hand. Go to the bench. And my coach yells over to me. He goes, no. Actually, I remember I put my racket in my bag, and I went over to him, and I gave him a hug immediately. And then he he was look, had his phone in his yeah. hand, and he goes, just so you know, that was a match for top hundred. Wow! And that's when it all. That's when the emotion came out, just because it was like, wow, these past three, four weeks, I have been one match away. Couldn't get it. Was kind of overthinking it, and then for it to happen in such dramatic fashion was was a, an ex- a feeling on the tennis court that I've never felt before. Honestly, don't know if I'll ever feel again. Just the, the emotion just came out, and I, I couldn't control it. Well, it's an inspiring story, and it's one that I think is it sheds light on the process, and also it doesn't. You know, you don't get to plan your moments; they just happen organically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You put yourself in that position. Also interesting to know these rain delay circumstances, the only time when the players are all in the locker room mid-match. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like, how's your match going? Exactly. Which is, and the thing <laughs> is, because it was somewhat, yeah. it was late at night yeah. in Miami, it was yeah. uh, third round. So, like, I mean, 
most a lot of players weren't there. It was a pretty quiet setting in the locker room. So I, I saw Francis and actually I think Francis saw me walk by. I walked yeah. into the locker room. Francis was having a conversation with his coach. And you can easily when you go into the <laughs> locker room after like a match has ended or even during the rain delays, you can tell by the body language right. of the players if things are going well, if they're not. It's <laughs> it's very obvious. So I walked in, I took a, a, a look at Francis and he was speaking with his coach Wayne Ferreira. And within a couple seconds, I could just tell the body language was not right, that right. Of, of his match going well. So I kind of I looked at him, gave him about a second, and then when I saw you know the body language, I just went on back to my locker in the back. And then Francis, <laughs> when he and Wayne finished, came and found me uh-huh. and said and uh, called me toothpick, toothpick. Yeah, throughout that the nickname lock, yeah. throughout the locker room, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm back here. And so we came, we talked about it, and that was what yeah. he said. And yeah, the rest was history. I noticed too in that run that you kept going all the way to the semis against uh, Medvedev, though that you you know, and I know you met him before, but you had that moment with Jamie Fox where he was there, yeah. And I I took it pretty entertainingly because it looked like you know he was so excited to see you, but you were kind of like I'm in the middle of a match here, like hey, it's great to see you, but yeah. it's a rain delay here. Yeah. Too. So I uh, yeah, funny <laughs> yeah. enough, I yeah. he un- and he understood. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was. I had talk, spoken with him before the match started, and yeah. we were trying to coordinate to make sure he'd get the tickets and the parking and everything that yeah. he needed. And then um, right before I went on, he said, hey, I'm on the way. Just, yeah. you know, go out there. And I got off to a really good start. The rain delay came at, I believe, 3-2, and I saw him come sit down at the 2-1 game. And I'm sitting on the bench. I see his seat is right across from – directly across from me, a little bit to the mm-hmm. right – and um, I look up and I see, I go, wow, he actually came. And he came with a couple other friends so I knew. And it, so it was kind of cool for them to be there and support. And right after the, uh, I'm sorry, the first rain delay, when I left the court, he had already left the court. And um, I saw him in the distance. So I, I go over <laughs> before I go to the locker room and just kind of say what's up. We, we yeah. um, you know, talk a little bit and just kind of, he's like, hey, man, you playing well. Keep it going. He had seen a couple games, so he, he really liked what he saw. And then I went to the locker room, and when I came back, that's when the clip of him going like uh, "Who banks?" and he's that kind of yelling, and it's all it's all uh, fun and games. And I got my warm up in; I was yeah. pretty pretty focused, and he he completely got yeah. it. Like he understood. It's it's very <laughs> tough to be able to hold in the laughter sometimes. Yeah. So like when he's like joking, I'm trying to be serious, but I have one earphone out so I can hear, and it's kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, it's it's it, it's all like fun. It was so cool to have him, you know, literally come into Miami to support me. Um, and it, to me that, that was mm-hmm. just, uh, that, that honestly was probably one of the bigger moments of this year because huh. we had known each other. He had talked about coming to, to watch me play. Um, and for him to actually, you know, make the effort came on, watched and yeah. really enjoyed it was pretty cool. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. North Chris Eubanks here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, on the tennis side as the year progressed, and this is a, a basic question that I wanted you to expand on, but when and how did the backhand get so good? Because that was the <laughs> first thing about people reacting to your game that followed you. is like, wow, this backhand got a lot better. It wasn't just the Wimbledon run. But yeah, what was that's the work? funny. Yeah. That's funny. It's a very good question. Um, during the offseason yeah. last year, my coach, Ruan Rolofsson, and I kind of yeah. made a, a point of emphasis on just grooving a few backhands at the end of practice. Not not mm-hmm. many, but just making the commitment to do yeah. five to ten minutes of it every yeah. day, almost every day. And I just think over time it right. just it having that that 
you know, peace of mind and knowing that, hey, I've put in the time on this shot, so I, I've trusted. I trust that I can go for it. I think that's all it was. It wasn't really a technical change. It was just the back end for a lot of my career was a side that I just didn't feel like I could stay in exchanges back end to back end with some of the best back ends in the world. I felt like I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to use the slice, find the forehand, but I didn't just want to hit back ends after back end after back end. And during the offseason, we got on court and we said, you know what, let's just let's make a commitment to five or ten minutes, three, four times a week, just get a few feeds in right at the mm-hmm. end. It could be ten balls, it could be fifteen balls, we could do, you know, three sets of eight balls, but just grooving it out of various positions. So he would go into the do side corner, he would feed me middle of the court, and I would just go kind of backhands cross just to find right. a good rhythm on it. The backhand up the line, honestly, has been a shot that I've always kind of liked. I just don't think I had the full confidence in it. When I oh. went to it, it was kind of a bit more like a bailout at times. Right. Or it was a shot that I would see and know it was the right time to, to go for it. And I would do it. Sometimes I would make it. Sometimes I would miss it. It just kind of it was a right. bit of a it was a bit of a crapshoot. I think once I just having that confidence of saying, hey, you know, well, we've been grooving this. We've been working on this. Let's just kind of allow, again, let it be the process. The process was we're going to commit to yeah. – a few minutes of backhands at the end of practice. Let's just kind of say that, hey, I did what I was supposed to do. Now let's go on court and see what my backhand looks like. And I think it just kind of freed me up to kind of be a little bit more aggressive, take a few more backhands up the line. And, and just I, I think it's so <laughs> funny now that when I hit backhands up the line, people are saying, like, oh, that's your signature shot. And I'm like, since when? Yeah. When is that? Like, it's always been a shot that right. I used a decent mm-hmm. bit, but it wasn't as – I it just looks you. clean. Like it that's looks the clean, thing. yeah. And, and I didn't use. And yeah. I think I've hit some on big points now. Right. I think I hit some. Um, funny enough, I uh, my match against Manorino. After the match, I went up to my coach and I told him. I said I had a feeling this match was going to come down to a backhand up the line return. And he was. Just, he kind of just looked and he said, "Oh, okay, cool, whatever." <laughs> but I, I remember. Um, I remember being later in the second and just feeling like, man, I feel like my backhand line return is going to be. Like it's gonna be a bit. I'm gonna need it at a big moment, and yeah. I think there was a game at four all forty love. Manorino's up serving, and I just said, I forty love. I, I'm gonna need this shot later, mm-hmm. so let me just practice it. So at forty love, he slices it wide. I step in, hit a winner up the line. Not a significant point, yeah. but it just allowed me to get the confidence in the rep. And I yeah. said, oh, like okay, I rep one. Right. I feel like it's gonna come down to this, and sure enough, we get into the tiebreaker. <laughs> I get up a mini break, and yeah. I say, oh, I might not need it because I might just hold it out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, obviously, I gave back the mini break, and we get to 5-6, I believe, in the second, and he missed the first serve. Mm-hmm. And when he missed the first serve, I was like, I've seen this before. Like right. I, I've, I saw it four games ago that I'm going to need this shot. So the commitment was 100% there. I knew the moment he missed the first yeah. serve that I was taking the backhand line. I hit it. It just <laughs> happened. And you can see after I hit it, I couldn't really see if it was going to land in, so I kind of dropped my head below the net <laughs> strap so I could kind of see it landed well inside the baseline, yeah. and I was just like, when I went to my coach afterwards, I said I had a feeling the backhand line was going to come yeah. on a really big point. I thought it was going to come down on a match point, but nobody ever knows. <laughs> and the fact that it did, it was probably the most mind-blowing thing. Yeah. I was like, what just happened? So you, you telling that story is is interesting, too, because you've been open about how commentary and you've been working here, and you were kind of one of the people that started. I feel like a lot of people are drafting behind you <laughs> in the commentary bug. They see how you're doing. But you've been open about how it's helped you and how it continues to help you. But hearing that story, and I agree with it, it seems like it's the process speed. You're able to self-diagnose what's happening on court maybe faster than others and think about how you would break down if you were commentating on a match. Yeah, I, th- I think certainly it definitely plays a part in allowing me to to take out some of the emotion that I feel mm-hmm. when you're when I'm on a tennis court and I'm so wound up of, of – 
trying to win and trying to 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 make sure. Obviously, I don't want to come out here and lose yeah. every single week. So the emotion can sometimes cloud your judgment a bit. And I think in commentary, just being able to take a step back and say, "Hey, if I were calling this match, what what patterns have mm-hmm. I seen?" this player try to go to on big points. What patterns have been working? What patterns haven't been working? Um, and it's a lot easier to do when you're not the one there and involved yeah. in the match. But I do think it's allowed me to kind of take a, a, a better view yeah. and just see the, the whole picture when I'm playing a match and allows me to kind of, you say, self-diagnose or just work my way through and problem solve a bit better. Yeah, when Shelby Rogers was on this show, she said it was the best scouting she could find was working here. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the grass court stuff is interesting, too, because you had that run at Wimbledon. You've been pretty open about how you had to adjust to playing on there. Had you know, texted Kim Kleisters, like, this is a really stupid surface. She kind of yeah. walked you off the ledge a little bit. But it was the run in Mallorca. You get your first title. Really, that match against Lloyd Harris, that, if you look back, if I look back, it's like a big fork in the road moment. You walk through in the sliding doors to the right, and then everything happens. How did you find your confidence on grass to not just get that title, but then take it into Wimbledon? Yeah, I, to be honest, everything was such a blur because it just happened so fast. It's like I had my first round against Mickelson, uh, and I was able to win that in three. My second round against Ben, I was able to get that win. That one, I think, was a pretty big win um, just for me just because Ben had had my number up until that point, and I had, um, especially playing on grass. He had also yeah. had a decent bit of grass court preparation, so I kind of knew with his game style. He's dangerous on any surface, <laughs> but that serve on grass is going to be yeah. nasty to have to deal with. Um, so to be able to get that win really was kind of like a big moment for me, and I feel like I kind of, you know, I, I advanced back to the quarterfinals for the first time of a tour event in a, in a good little bit. I mean, I had Miami and I had Atlanta, but up until that point, I don't think I'd had another quarterfinal. Um, so I kind of I felt good. My, I felt like I just kind of, you know, played a bit free. And then, yeah, the match with Lloyd was a bit up and down. There was some pretty good quality tennis um, at times and me having to save those match points. Again, like you say, I got some favorable let courts. I got some favorable let courts against Ben. I got a couple favorable let Mm -hmm. courts against Lloyd. Like, things just seemed to kind of align perfectly. And, yeah, after kind of getting past that, having to to face Rinderganesh, who's very, very tough on any service, but especially on grass, and then, you know, Topping it off with Manorino, who had been playing and has played yeah. since then, even um, really, really well. Everything just seemed to kind of fall in place, yeah. and I it, it to go from that to playing the final on Saturday. We flew out to London late Saturday night on the last flight from Mallorca to mm-hmm. uh, there's another airport, not Heathrow, but like Stansfield, something like that. And then it was like an hour, twenty hour and a half ride from there to the hotel. Mm-hmm. We got to the hotel at like four a.m. I woke up, um, and then this is when I realized things were so different because I had Grand Slam press. I had never done press out of Grand Slam <laughs> yeah. like this before. It's like, oh, ESPN wants to talk to you. Um, I believe it might have been New York Times. Like, uh. And I'm talking with my agent, and I'm just like, wait, when did all this start? They were like, you just want a title, man. Like, People want to talk to you. So because I was so busy, I never had the time to really like sit back and go, I, I just want an ATP 250. It was kind of like, I don't want to win an ATP 250 and then fall in the first round of Wimbledon. Yeah, you riding the wave a little bit. Yeah, it was like yeah. I, I didn't want to just, you know, win that one and then lose in the first round. This right. year in Australia, I played Sun Wukwan in the first round, and he had just won a title in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. So I could, And I could sense that he wasn't all there physically. Mm-hmm. It was He had played some really, really tough physical matches, yeah. obviously in tough, hot uh, conditions in Adelaide. So I kind of did – I saw that, and I remember playing him. I ended up winning in five, but I could just see early on that, like, yeah. ah, he, he's managing his body a little mm-hmm. bit. I didn't want to fall in the first right. round the next week. So, I mean, I, I yeah, it was more so like 
let's just keep it going. Let's act like we're still in one tournament yeah. and not like let everything just fully relax after Mallorca. It's like, okay, you know, went to sleep at four on Sunday, <laughs> had to wake up, do press and practice at 12, one, two, three. Then we go back to the hotel up oh, Monday. I don't play Monday. What's the normal off day routine. Let's find a practice. Right. Let's make sure I see the physios. And by the time you get in your routine, you, you don't really have the time. You don't really even think to like sit back and kind of enjoy it because you want to make sure you're sleeping enough. You want right. to make sure you're getting your time in, getting treatment. And of course, you want to practice and get used to the new conditions. So everything just kind of mm -hmm. kept going. It was like, oh, wow, I won Mallorca. Oh, I got London. What time is Preston? All right. Now, <laughs> yeah. okay, now I have practiced. Have we talked to, I think I practiced with Ben actually. Hey, Ben, you want to practice on Monday since we both don't play? Cool. Da -da -da. We go on and then I played on Tuesday. And once you get on that match day, everything, it's like you're right back in the same mm -hmm. rhythm as you were in before. How much did everything change after that sets of pass match from like phone to people hitting you up to just um, because that was the one that was the one. I mean, we're going to look at that one and saying that you took out one of the very best players in the game and had to battle to do it to stay yeah. in that match after how he played the first set. Was yeah, I was, pretty getting, great. I, was, I was getting thoroughly outplayed in that match. Um, yeah. So it, it, funny enough, it's the, the city pass match was obviously special. Mm -hmm. It was it was still special. People will ask me, you know. <laughs> You know, what was your, your best match that you played, you know, at Wimbledon? I still think the Nori match was really big for yeah. me because Nori was the number one Brit and he had semifinal at Wimbledon. And you, were on the main, and you were on one of the main courts, yeah, too, which court is one. another part of it, too, is that you're going from outer courts to main courts, yeah. maybe out again. Like, yeah. it's not a great adjustment to have to make all the time. Yeah, it's not. It's not. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think getting through that Nori match, playing the number one Brit at Wimbledon in a packed court one, like... Mm -hmm. That to me was was an experience, you know. I and Nori was the when I was in school, Nori was the man. Like Nori was <laughs> the guy in college tennis. Yeah, like we, yeah, my yeah. freshman year, obviously Noah Rubin um, came in and kind of lit, you know, college tennis up. But I think even maybe after that, my sophomore junior junior year, Nori was <laughs> he was like the guy. He like played was doing well in pro events. He was qualifying in mm -hmm. and finaling challengers, and then coming back and playing <laughs> dual matches. And at that time. Now we're seeing more college guys doing yeah. well on, uh, in pro tournaments consistently. But at that time, it was kind of like, what is this? No, why is he even in school? Like, my <laughs> goodness, this here. guy is so good, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so to, to be able to kind of to win that match, I think was the big, was, you know, yeah. I would argue bigger. But, yeah, the Sissy Pops match was certainly a, it was a fun atmosphere. Uh, one thing I, I will never forget about the Sissy Pops match is you're, you're asking how much things change. I have a really funny yeah. story. So they take our, they escort us from um, the uh, the meeting point. We go to what court was it? Court two, maybe or three, something like that. We go uh -huh. to our court, and you have to kind of walk through the grounds. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. the security is escorting us. We're walking through the grounds. It's not that you know right. many people noticing it, but it's just people's like, oh, that's sissy mm -hmm. pop. So oh, that that's uh, Eubanks. When we when I finished the match, I packed, I signed a bunch of autographs. I put my rackets in my bag. I walked up the same way that we had come, and you go out of this side. You have to go up these steps, and then you end up in a side mm -hmm. door, the side of the the stadium. Mm -hmm. Kind of, it's a little small stadium. The moment security opened the door, I've never in my life seen that many people almost like mobbing to try to get at me. That was when <laughs> I. It was literally. Yeah. It, it, it sounds funny and it sounds dramatic, but it's like when the doors open from security, I saw so many people. <laughs> And I said, oh, wow. And they looked at me. Security said, are you ready? I was like, yeah. And they grabbed one of them, grabbed one of my arms. The other one kind of like wow. pushed me along. And it was literally just um, just running through people. And I'm sitting here and I go, what do these people want? Like, what is going on? Like, I've never seen anything like this. I walked on the court. It yeah. was fine. You know, a few autographs or people yeah. just want to We go on court. We play the match. I come off. Time now, yeah. And it's literally like 
doors open, I freeze. They go, you ready? And they just grab my right arm, and we just bear, just yeah. boom through people. And that was when I realized, oh, I think things are a lot different now. Well, it was fascinating, too, because you have the Good Morning America stuff. Everybody wants to talk to you. You still have to keep playing. And then you have Medvedev. And I think one of the lasting memories of your Wimbledon run is the fight in that match. Yep. There have been a lot of players in your situation that have the breakthrough win, and then there's the letdown after. You're playing one of the absolute best in the world, and you can speak to how relentless he is out there. But it was a thrilling five-set match and one that you were tapping back into a lot of it. How did you keep your head in the run and maybe head down is a better way to put it with all the expectation and newfound fame and success? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that helped me was it was the first time I think in my professional career that I really utilized do not disturb on my phone. <laughs> and I think that helped me a lot. I had to figure yeah. out how the focus, yeah. you know, setting worked on my iPhone yeah. because there were still certain people who I wanted, I needed to hear from my coach. Um, I wanted to hear from my parents. Uh, that's, good. that's a good point, like filtering out. Yeah, I had, I, had, I had to see yeah. whose messages can, can just come through yeah. at all times. Yeah. And um, I think I put, like, Coco in there. I put Ben in there, my girlfriend in there, my coach in there, uh, my agents in there, mm -hmm. like, making mm -hmm. sure those messages were always coming through. But I didn't really sense any outside expectation. It's like, man, like, I wasn't supposed to be here at the beginning mm -hmm. of the grass court season. So it was like – I just wanted to go out there. I'm sitting, finding myself in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, and I'm playing a guy who, luckily, I'd played before. So it, it that also poses a challenge in itself, and and allows me to kind of say, "Hey, I've seen what this level is. I've seen, um, I've I know what his weight of shot feels like. I know what he's going to try to do, and it just allowed it just freed me up a bit. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think I lost the first in that, and then came back and played. Probably two and a half sets of was, the cleanest yeah. tennis I've ever seen in my of I've ever played in my life. I was yeah. hitting returns. I was just cranking the ball so well. I was serving well. I was coming to net a lot, and I just felt like I could just get him off balance. He raised his level a good bit in the fourth. Started serving well. It was just I I couldn't really get a read on his serve. So um, we did we got to the tiebreaker, and. It's funny, I, I had done a few interviews with ESPN, and they had spoken about, you know, your tiebreak record has been so good. I believe I beat uh, Chris O'Connell in the third round, 6-6-6. Mm -hmm. six, six, and six. Um, I may have had a tiebreaker against Tiago Montero. Um, I'm trying to think. Nori, maybe there was a break in. So, yeah. and, and even dating back to Mallorca, I'd had some really good right. tiebreaks. So they was like, man, you're playing well in breakers. Yeah. And I remember just saying, oh, wow, I have been playing well in breakers. So going into that fourth set breaker against Medvedev, it was more like, all right, I've been playing well in breakers. Let, let, let's just go out here and see and see what happens. And you know, he, I think we got to, I got down a mini break, got it back, and at four all, I believe I remember hitting a serve, or maybe three all. I hit a serve, second serve. He put the return maybe like two feet from the baseline, and I was fi fighting it off just to make it. He then hits a first ball winner. Okay, four three, and then I think he popped two serves. Boom boom. And got the points. And I go, ah, his level is – he got the first serves when he yeah, needed it. Yeah. He put a return deep, second serve return really deep right up the middle of the court. And so I'm like, ah, these are the right, levels of the right. players who've been here before. They can just take comfort because they can raise their level and play the best tennis when they need it. I wasn't able to do it. And then the fifth set was an absolute <laughs> drumming. I remember kind of being like, oh, no. Like, did that? Oh, no. Like – I thought I had a look at them fourth, and you try to tell yourself, especially with my game style, oh, I can hold serve. Yeah. I'll, I'll, you know, I will keep this thing going. Yeah. I, he started returning really well. My first serve percentage dropped, and it was, it was, there was not much I can do in the fifth. But like, it, it did kind of feel like, at certain points in that match, I felt like I definitely belonged, yeah. and I felt like I could, you know, yeah. something that 
I want to continue to work towards to have that opportunity again, just because he's been in those situations so many times yeah. that he can take comfort in it. I wasn't <laughs> maybe as comfortable, but I think the more I'm there, hopefully yeah. the more comfortable I become. It was a special player, and it says a lot to your level that he had to raise his to get yeah. there. So uh, wrapping up here with Chris Eubanks on Tennis Channel Inside In. Got to also say it's been a good year, not just for you, for your friends too. Everybody kind of getting in on the success. I mean, you probably are the least surprised with what we've seen from Ben Shelton, right, from his year. Yeah. U.S. Open was a coming out party, but something that we all were kind of figuring would happen eventually. Maybe not so soon, but... I mean, he's captivating tennis, you have to say that. Yeah, and he's, that, that's the thing that has been really, really cool to see. Um, it's not just the tennis. The tennis part, it was, it was very obvious. And this is when I think his run in Australia kind of solidified what I had thought about Ben because we had played, and again, I hadn't had that much experience at mm -hmm. tour level, so we're primarily playing in challengers, and you know, he goes 15 matches in mm -hmm. a row, wins three consecutive titles in the challengers, and you're kind of like, man, like, I, I know I've played big servers before and I've played good tennis players before, but Ben's level is just really high right now. Like, it's really high. <laughs> and I'm kind of, I, I know how good he's going to be. I think it was when he kind of made that run in Australia that yeah. it solidified how good he already was. Yeah. And I think that was the the biggest thing for me was seeing that run. And he had to save a match point in the first round. Like, that mm -hmm. it, that could have changed a lot of things if he doesn't save that match point against Xi Jinping. But... When he made that run in Australia, it kind of made me feel like, okay, I knew I wasn't bugging. Like, I knew, like, <laughs> yeah. the level that he was showing over the past two or three months was another level. So, it was really, really cool to see that on the tennis side. He had a bit of, a obviously, a slump in between there, um, unable to win consecutive tour-level matches. But then I played him in Cincinnati, and when I played him in Cincy, I felt like that was the best that he had played in our matchups. Um, I felt like his serve was a lot more difficult to return in those conditions than Cincy. Yeah. And it just made me feel like, all right, he seems, and we, funny enough, we were practicing together when we found out we played each other. Yeah. So we had gotten to Cincy. We said, Hey, you want to practice? Yeah. Well, okay. We practice. We're finishing up practice. I think I'm hitting serves. He's sitting down, uh, just getting some water, uh, before he goes and does some returns. And I see his mom come up to the side of the fence and she's just kind of looking at her phone. And it's just, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what's going on. And then Brian, his dad, comes over to his mom, and they're huddled over the phone. And I'm just, and um, one of the USCA and the conditioning coaches, Rashad Langford, was over there with them. So it was like a little huddle. Yeah. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And Ben and I are sitting there. My coach is sitting there. And we're just kind of like not really paying him any attention. <laughs> and I can just hear Brian go, no way. And he turns around. He goes, you guys want to guess who you play? So Ben and I were also playing doubles yeah, in Cincy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking he's talking about the doubles draw. So yeah. I go, oh, the number one team in the world. Like, he goes, no, singles. Yeah. And I go, no, there's no way. He goes, you guys play each other. So we're sitting there, and even in, yeah, it just kind of went funny. like, wow, you got to be kidding me. So we kind of, um, yeah. I think we continued practice for a little bit. There's no real secrets between us, so it's like right. there's no point in hiding. Um, we practiced for a little bit. Yeah. But even in, in even in the practice before I found out that we played each other, I was like, He's, he's he's varying up his spins and his speeds and his locations a lot more than he ever has. Before, it's kind of like boom on the first serve, and maybe you use the slider yeah. a decent bit, but the kick would kind of be the second. Right. He was mixing in kick first serves. He was mm -hmm. mixing in cut body second serves. He was mixing in big second serves. He yeah. was just so much variety, and it just made me feel like, man, he's really – he's. He's tough. Like he, he's he's continuing to add tools to his game. Yeah. So then I um I lost to him in three. He ended up losing the city about six and six. But I think in almost all of his service games, he's held really comfortably. Mm -hmm. Like he just it wasn't his serve that right. was the problem why he lost that match. And I was just like, he's playing really really well. And 
when I saw him kind of going to New York and I saw that run he had, I was like, all right, it was another, it was like yeah. another one. Like, okay, I knew last week he was playing at another level. Yeah. Like I knew something was different. So it just kind of reinforced what I already yeah. knew about Ben. And to see the 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 notoriety and the, the, the fame and everything that he's kind of gotten as a result of right. it, I personally don't think he could have happened to a better person. I think he's an incredible kid. He's so talented. And um, at the end of the day, to see kind of the world Finding right. out who Ben Shelton is has been really cool because I feel like I've been right there kind of a little, maybe not from the beginning, but, you know, the beginning of his professional career. And it's been really, really cool and really rewarding for me to be able to watch him progress the way way that he has. To also follow that up at the U.S. Open, win the title, keep riding that wave, uh, show improvements. We talked about rally tolerance and little differences in his game that he's added. And also, you know, that whole run and, and bringing that out of Novak. I think we're in the same boat. It was great to see. And it shows you the respect that they have for each other. Novak is going to that level to beat Ben Shelton. Yeah. It's uh, very it's very special to see. And then also just the last thing, I mean Coco winning the US Open. Someone that's helped you instrumentally in your career. Uh, you're gonna have to probably get to a Grand Slam level to have a one up on her. <laughs> yeah, so it might I know. Be tough now. I know it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough. But uh, to to be able to sit there and to be able to sit there and, and have a kind of a front yeah. row view of her progression, um really I mean I, I've known her since she was about five or six, but uh-huh. to be able to start off her pro career from about 14 and, and to be as close with her as I have been for these past few years yeah. and to see and to know all the hard work that it's taken to get to this point mm-hmm. to all of the, you know, the outside yeah. noise that's kind of been there, people questioning, you know, her forehand, people questioning, you know, what, what she needs to do with her team and just to see her kind of yeah. block out the noise as best as she can or as best as she could, and to go through and have that summer that she had and culminating with the U.S. Open. I also, too, think it's really, really interesting that Coco's spectacular U.S. Open run came the year after Serena retired because I remember last year at the U.S. Open, Serena and I played on opposite days, which mm-hmm. kind of worked against me because I couldn't stay around and watch her play right. because she's playing the night match in Queens. Mm-hmm. I'm in the city. I have to play the next day. I can't afford to be there at until 9 or 10 p.m. and then yeah. going home and having dinner. So... Um, I didn't get a chance to watch her, but I could watch it on TV and I could see the excitement that was surrounding her matches. As Coco began to progress later in the tournament, I was like, yeah, granted, it's not Serena level because it was, you know, the GOAT's last run. But to see the like New York and to see the world kind of rally around her, to see so many celebrities, I got to see Spike Lee sitting courtside. (laughs) I saw, you know, Adele and Rich Paul, like all of these people sitting courtside and people going to watch Coco golf. I'm like... Man, I know that little girl. Like I, I like like that's like my little sister. Like and to see so many people really rather r- rally around it was so cool. Um and I was so hurt that I I wasn't there. I'd done some commentary um during the US Open and I after I lost, I'd stayed some extra days. And it got to a point where I, New York can be a lot and I said, yeah. "You know what? I think she was in the quarters at that time. I think I watched her play Ostapenko, whichever round that was." Quarters, and I yeah. left the, either that day or the next day. Yeah. And um, I got back home, and I said, you know, if she advances to the final, I'm, I'm probably going to fly up and go. My badge was still working, so I just needed to fly <laughs> into uh, LaGuardia, yeah. Yeah. Uber to the site, watch the match, uh-huh. and I was going to fly back home. Um, and she wins the semifinal. I start to look at flights, and I, for some reason I go, I see flight. There's a couple flights in uh, LaGuardia, and New York Fashion Week is going on at the same mm-hmm. time. So when I look at it, I said, okay, I'll see it. I'll let me book it in a couple hours. I need yeah. to think on it a little bit more. So I was still a bit, I'm like, am I really going to fly up there for one match? I'm still a bit hesitant. And ironically enough, either I call her or she calls me the night before the final. And we FaceTime for a little bit. 
and I she could see that I was at home, right. and I was like, man, it'd be. And when we hung up, I go, it'd be really cool if she looked up because she knows I'm in Atlanta. It'd be yeah. really cool if she looked up and saw me there, um, just to be there to support for her, sure. win or lose yeah. for the final. So I said, you know what, I'm about to buy the ticket. I go on there, try to book the ticket. I can't find a flight to New York, not a single one. Mm-hmm. I looked. LaGuardia, I looked JFK, I looked Newark, I couldn't find a single flight. And I'm like, there's no, I can't. So I looked at flying to Philly and taking a train. I looked at every option because I always said, like, I wanted to be there when she Mm -hmm. wins her first Grand Slam. I wasn't able to be at the final in Paris when she lost. And I was like, this was in New York. Like, I have the badge. I might as well go. When I made the decision to go, I wasn't able to uh, find a flight and everything. So I ended up just staying home, (laughs) watching it on TV like the rest of us. And outside of my match with Barrera, I think that might have been the only time that I've, I actually cried a little bit. It was watching her win it wasn't the real emotional part. It was watching her hug her dad at the end. Yeah. That really got me. And you could see, and I know Corey and Coco so well. I know what, you know, I have an idea of what they've kind of been through to get to that point. So to see them have that embrace, and I'm sitting in front of the TV, and I can't believe it. And when she fall, runs into his arms and they hug each other, I said, oh, man, and it started coming out. Yeah. So I, I sent her a message. I was like, listen, I don't usually cry <laughs> like that. I was like, you and, you and your dad made me cry. Like, that was a really, really cool moment for me to see. She's very, very well built for success. Oh, absolutely. A very special thing to say about a very talented uh, player. Person, absolutely. For sure. Well, Chris, this has been a blast. I guess last thing is how do you build off the success? You had the career year, but still very much left in the tank to accomplish. How do you keep it going? Uh, I think at this point, it's just going to be you know, continuing in that process. And I think, like I, like I spoke about earlier, it's easier to invest in that process and trust it fully when I've, when you've had the results Mm -hmm. that I've had. So it's like, I know what I'm capable of when Mm -hmm. I'm committed to this process, when I'm not focusing on winning and losing. Um, Every tennis player, every athlete is wired differently. Some obsess over winning and losing, and that's why they are as great as they are. I did that for a while. It didn't really work for me. I had to find what works for me. And what works for me is just saying, Hey, just like with the backhand feeds, Mm -hmm. if we're going to commit to doing 10 minutes of this Mm -hmm. extra work, four times a week, we're going to do it. If we're going to commit to getting a little bit of extra time in the gym two times a week, I'm mm-hmm. going to do it. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to continue to do it and then allow the results to kind of happen whenever they happen. So for me, it's not, it's just kind of doubling down on it. Yeah. I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm going to be playing a lot better, higher ranked opponents more consistently. So I need to make sure that I'm ready physically and mentally for it. And I think for me, the biggest thing is just saying, hey, this is my process. We're going to devise a plan in the offseason of going into next year. When we're at tournaments. This is what yeah. we're going to do. And we're going to follow this blueprint. Win or lose, we're going to follow this blueprint. I'm going to get the treatment I need, get the ice bath I need, the massage I need, and do everything that I can do to be as good as I can be um, and just try to be a couple percentages better. Wherever I end up, I could end up you know, 90 or 120 at the end of this yeah. year. But I'm going to continue and trust yeah. this process because I know what this process can do for me. And we'll just see what happens. Well, we know your estimates have been on the lower side. You've exceeded a lot of your <laughs> predictions. So a lot left in the tank. Chris Eubanks, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Insight. And I know you probably had a little to do, you won't admit, with Graham Knowles going to Georgia Tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was super excited about that, man. Uh, I've, I've got a chance to kind of talk with him over Twitter. Yeah. I think I congratulated him after he committed. Yeah. And then he responded saying, thanks, Mr. Eubanks. I, yeah. And I quickly told him, I said, we're not going to do that. I was like, if you call me Mr. Eubanks, I can make your life really miserable it's, at Georgia yeah. Tech. Well, so, so, yeah. 
was so happy for Mark. And then I saw that I'm like the tennis community works together. Oh man, we got, we got to try to, we got to work together. So I'm, I'm really excited to see Graham. And uh, as long as he doesn't call me Mr. Eubanks, his (laughs) life at Georgia Tech will be real peaceful. Uh, Let's put it that way. Well, Chris, always a pleasure, man. Can't wait for the next one. Best of luck on everything. Commentary and of course playing. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Thanks to Chris Eubanks for appearing on this week's show. He's had a remarkable and tremendous 2023. Uh, More good things in store. And one of the genuine nice guys in tennis and in media. So props to him. What you see on TV is not an act that is a very genuine and very nice human being. Thanks to Chris Eubanks. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to this week's show. You can get the episode, the entire catalog of shows on our network by going to tennis.com slash podcast. If you want to find this podcast on all your podcast platforms, whether it's Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, of course, just search Tennis Channel Insight and the show will pop up. You can subscribe, leave a rating, a review. And when you subscribe, each episode will be automatically downloaded to your listening device, whether it's your tablet, your phone, whatever you listen to, your podcasts on, Inside In will show up each and every Thursday. Thanks to Chris Eubanks. There'll be another exclusive interview next Thursday during the shortened tennis offseason, which we have to take advantage of. Only a few weeks left before actual tennis is played again. But thanks again to Chris Eubanks. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. My name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. I'll talk to you next week.